here's the picture. A flat surface, a flat stone surface with two angels on each end. That reminds me of something very specific, and it tells me exactly what was going on here. The most important thing ever, uh, and this is the subject matter that we run into tonight, the resurrection of Jesus. So John chapter 20 is where we are tonight. And I'm just going to dive right in. So here we have Jesus has died on the cross. Not only has he died, Joseph of Arimathea has requested to take Jesus' body and bury it in a tomb, which fulfills unbelievably prophecy from Isaiah 53, that he would be, his grave would be with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. As Jesus died between two criminals, but was taken by a rich man into his own land, into his own tomb, who was a follower of Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea. In doing so, they have wrapped Jesus's body in linen and placed like a hundred pounds of spices and lotions on that to preserve the body and to, you know, help with the smell. And they rolled a gigantic stone in front of that tomb. And that moment has left everybody scared, sad, and afraid. The disciples have scattered and ran away, not knowing what was going to happen next. But the grief of a few people is too much to overcome, and they go to visit the tomb. And it's the, the women in Jesus' life. And John particularly focuses on Mary Magdalene. So here we pick up, and it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to him, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Mary Magdalene, on Sunday, following Passover and following the crucifixion, with grief goes to go see Jesus' tomb, to mourn, to grieve, and she looks up, and the stone is rolled away from the tomb. And the word there, they said that she saw that. And the word in Greek is for saw is blepo. It means she noticed it. Pretty hard thing not to notice. A stone that weighs a couple of tons is pretty big. And to notice that it's not covering the cave anymore is a big deal. Before it even goes any further, after noticing this, she runs and she goes to see Peter and John, and she lets them know. She thinks someone has taken the body. She says they. We don't know who she means by they. We don't know if she thinks it's the Romans. We don't know if she thinks it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees. We don't know who she thinks they are. But she is not expecting what actually happened. And so she's trying to rationalize what she noticed. The stone 
is gone. The body's not in there anymore. So Peter, therefore, he went out and, uh, out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So Peter and John decide to go to the tomb. Verse 4, so they ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. If you don't know who the other disciple is, that's John, the author of this book, who uh, decided to include that he was faster for some reason. The Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways, and he was guided to tell us all that Peter is slow. But he gets there, and it says, and he, meaning John, he's stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he didn't go in. So Peter came in following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now here's the difference between Peter and John, I guess. Not only is Peter slower, but Peter seems to be more inquisitive. They get to the tomb. John notices the linen lying there. And Peter hears John say this, and he decides to go in. He goes into the tomb to make sure. And Peter, as he was following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Now, the word for saw there is not the same word. So while the translation into English is the same, it's not the same Greek word. It actually gives us some indication of what's going on here. So the Greek word is thereo, and it's investigated, taking in, observing, more than just noticing. It's a deeper look into what's going on. And so Peter investigates, and he goes into the tomb, and we get a little, because of his investigation, we get a little extra detail into what's going on, and he saw that the linen clothes were lying there, and some extra detail. The handkerchief that had been, had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So, right now, you have very confused people. People who think that Jesus' body was stolen but this is what's been observed. The body isn't any longer with the linen cloth. Now, if you're going to steal a dead body, I'm pretty sure you'd want to take the spices and lotions that made it smell better with it. But the cloth is lying there, not torn. But the head garment that was wrapped around Jesus's head wasn't just lying there, it was neatly folded, so we have very polite crooks. But not really, because this is actually the, this is the cultural indication. There's a little piece of Jewish history and culture that might give us some insight into what's going on here. So there was this thing that they would do if you went to a dinner at someone's house, and they invited you, and you enjoyed your time there, and you wanted to come back, you really thought that they were hospitable, and you wanted to give them sort of a cultural thank you, but not verbally, you would scrunch up your napkin and throw it on the plate, basically saying this was a great time. But if you felt you had been mistreated, then what you would do is politely and neatly fold up the napkin and place it back on the table as if to say, 
I don't want to come back. <laughs> this is, you were mistreated, you were treated poorly. And considering Jesus also fulfilling prophecy was rejected by his own people, left a folded handkerchief next to the linen cloths is a symbol of how he was mistreated and rejected by his own people. And now Peter is observing all of this, and it doesn't measure up to what they expected. They thought Jesus' body had been stolen, but there's no one silly enough after three days to take a decomposing body away from the linen cloths that held, it, held the smell in, um, or that would neatly fold a handkerchief. Um, so things don't look normal here. So what happens? John decides to do something. The other disciple, verse 8, who came into the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. Now, John goes in there. He also likes to mention again that he was first. So that's there. But then it says, he saw and believed. Now, again, in English, it sounds like we're just reading the same thing, but it's not. The Greek word for saw here is aido, which means understood. So first they noticed, hey, something weird's going on here. Peter investigates, and then John understands. And because he understands, he believes. And it all comes together in his head. Verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So in John's head, he understood what happened and things started to make sense. The picture became clear. Jesus is back. Now, but Mary, verse 11, stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but didn't know it was Jesus. So we got a lot to cover here. What we've got is a picture of Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's looking at the slab of stone that Jesus was laid on, the linens lying there, but there's no Jesus. And on each side of that slab are two angels sitting or kneeling. And she's weeping. And then she sees these guys and doesn't understand what's going on. And she's asking them to tell them where Jesus has gone. And then Jesus shows up and she doesn't recognize him because she doesn't expect him. Also, Jesus was at the she was, Mary was at the crucifixion of Jesus, which means that the last time she saw him, she saw him with all of the whipping marks, completely bloody and disfigured. And now Jesus is like looking good. So it doesn't look like three days ago. And so she doesn't recognize him. But here's the picture. A flat surface. A flat stone surface with two angels on each end. 
That reminds me of something very specific. And it tells me exactly what was going on here. See, there was a, a high holiday that the Jews celebrated called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, after sacrificing a goat, would cleanse himself and bring in blood from the goat into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And in there would sit the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle blood on what was called the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And that would symbolize the, the sin of the nation being sprinkled on the mercy seat. But that blood from the lamb, from the goat, offer, is an offering to cleanse the sin of the people, of the whole nation. And it goes sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then another goat would run out into the wilderness called the scapegoat. But this is the picture. The sin of the nation is cleansed by the blood on the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? The mercy seat is what sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a golden box. Well, it's wood, but it's covered in gold, and it's two feet by three feet. Doesn't sound that difficult to understand. But the top, the lid, is called the mercy seat, and it was solid gold, a flat surface. But on each end of that flat surface were two angels with their wings pointed toward each other. And in between the two angels is where the blood went that covered the sin of the nation. Now what Mary is looking at is a flat surface where Jesus laid, where the blood sacrifice for mankind was put. That surface is now flat, and there are two angels on each side of that flat surface. And Mary stands there weeping because the atonement of mankind has happened. Now Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So Mary, in her hysteria, completely wishing to just have Jesus' body back, to give it the respect that she thinks it deserves, looks at him and says, give the body back to me, I'll take care of it. Now, she can't, even if it was the case that this person knew where Jesus' body was. This person is Jesus. But if she was right about him being the gardener and him knowing where Jesus' body was, how is she going to take a grown man's dead body weight that's decomposing and do something with it? She can't, but she's hysterical right now because she's so concerned for what's happening. I want you to understand her state of mind. As she's crying, she's looking at Jesus through her tears, whose, whose wounds, other than the holes in his hands and the piercing in his side, have been healed. And so she's looking at him and doesn't even recognize him. And all she knows is her Lord is gone, and she wants to do something about it. But Jesus says to her in verse 16, Mary. That's it. Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher, everything changed when he said her name. And she recognized him immediately. Now, I can't help but think about this moment. That picture 
of the Day of Atonement sitting there, understanding that the atonement of mankind has just happened. Sin has been paid for. And Jesus is standing there. Mary is weeping because the hope that she thought she had was gone. The Messiah was gone. The person she thought was the Messiah, no longer there, dead in her mind. Not only dead, but disrespected and taken away. And that's the process in her mind. That's what's going on. She thinks all hope is lost, but Jesus says her name. Mary. And so I think of this moment when eternity hits, when I stand before the judgment throne of God, all hope is lost. Because if I'm standing before a holy, righteous, perfect God, I know I don't measure up. The gap between us is too large. I can't do anything about it. But if Jesus is standing there atoning for my sin, and he says, Stephen, this one's mine. This one's been paid for. Then hope is no longer lost. And eternal life is given. And that's the picture of this moment right here, because Jesus said her name. So on Judgment Day, will Jesus say your name? Now Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken things to her. Now, here's an interesting piece of this, right? John is the writer of this gospel. He's even so inclined to tell you that he's faster than Peter, but he's also willing to tell you that Mary was the first one to speak to Jesus. At a time when a woman's testimony would not be admissible in court. So someone who was willing to say that they beat Peter in a foot race didn't have the pride to say that he spoke to Jesus first. Why? It's not because it's about him or his pride. It's because he's just telling the events of the story as they happen. He's telling the truth. And Jesus appeared to the women first. So then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and he said to them, peace be with you. And we had said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So now what goes on is we see now two instances where Jesus has done something outside of just coming back to life. Miraculous. When we saw the linen, it was just laying there, not torn. Somehow he escaped this shell around him without breaking it. And now somehow Jesus has entered into a room where the doors were locked and just appeared out of nowhere. Why? Because Jesus is in his resurrected body. He's in, he's physically resurrected, but he's in his resurrected body. And these are some of the things we can look forward to. Jesus has become so much more real than the world around him that he can, he can physically enter into a room 
without using the doors. What that tells us mathematically is reality, he has access to extra dimensions because he's more real than the world that he's entering. So when we receive our resurrected bodies, we'll get some cool new things that we can do. Walls won't mean as much. But Jesus enters in and he shows them the wounds. Interesting, the stripes are healed. The whipping lashes. He looks like Jesus again, but what does he keep? He keeps the nail prints in his hands and the piercing in his side. And this tells us something very interesting. That the one thing man made that will last through eternity are the wounds from the cross. Because Jesus doesn't wear them in defeat. He wears them as a trophy of victory because it saved us. It atones for his bride, the church. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you refrain, retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin of the twelve, was not with them when, when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas gets kind of a bad rap. Jesus has appeared to the disciples. He's shown them the wounds. And now John tells us Jesus showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. Thomas didn't see that, but they expect him to believe even though he didn't see the same thing they saw. Thomas doesn't believe them. He says, I'm not going to believe unless I put my fingers in the wounds from the cross. Now, I, as much as Thomas is wrong right here, I kind of respect Thomas's way of thinking. He wants to know that what happened, what they're saying happened, really happened. Now, could you just imagine the kind of world we would live in if people thought that way, <laughs> if they would actually want to investigate truth rather than just believing what they hear. So it's not all bad that he was wrong. What is good is that Thomas was willing to change his mind when confronted with the truth. And that would also be nice if we lived in a world where people were humble enough to recognize truth over emotion. In verse 26, it says, After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. So Thomas must have been getting mocked for over a week about his disbelief when everyone else is telling him, This is true. But Jesus came, again, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst. So, all right, clue number one for Thomas, this guy appears out of nowhere. And he says, Peace be to you. And then he looks at Thomas and he says, Reach your finger here. And look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. When confronted with the truth, he changes his mind and he believes. Thomas even goes to the death. He goes through a torturous death because of his belief in the resurrection, because he saw Jesus with his own eyes. And he refused to ever say he was lying because he wasn't. 
even unto death, even unto torture. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So those of us who didn't get to witness Jesus' resurrection get a little bit of a blessing from Jesus here. Because we don't get the same proof that Thomas did. We don't get to poke our hands, our fingers through the nail-scarred hands and the, the side piercing. All we get is all the evidence from history and what the Gospels tell us and what Roman historians and Jewish historians tell us. And also the witness of these people being willing to be tortured to death for what they say is the truth, which is that Jesus was resurrected. And when we believe, we're blessed. Verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I think that's an interesting place for John to put that in his gospel. I think the Holy Spirit was well intended when it guided him to do so. Because right after the blessing from Jesus, that for those who don't see this, they're blessed for believing without having seen the proof that you get to see Thomas. But John writes, everything he writes, he didn't write everything that Jesus did because it's impossible to write everything that Jesus did. But what John writes down, he writes so that you and I can come to belief in Christ as the Messiah so that we can be saved. And that, that's the conclusion of, of chapter 20. And it tells us the point of why John wrote this book. He wants us to believe because he so desperately wants to see people get saved and come to the salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ and the atoning of our sins on the cross. Which brings me back to that picture of Mary Magdalene. It looks like the Day of Atonement. The sin in your life has been atoned for. And death was defeated by life. Jesus defeated death by coming back to life, which means he has life to offer. He offers us eternal life because of the atoning he did on the cross for your sins and mine. And there will be a time when we'll want to be like Mary, weeping before God. Because we know that individually we don't measure up. God's law is perfect, and God himself is perfect and righteous and holy. He's unlike any other. And when we stand before him, the distance will be immeasurable. We can't be what he is. But Jesus whispers our name and offers us life. Have you heard him? On that day, will you hear his voice saying your name? Will you be let in because you've accepted the atonement on the cross and you've turned from the world and pointed your heart directly at him to follow Jesus and receive freely the gift of eternal life, a gift that's completely free to you but cost him everything? But after it cost him everything, he raised to life three days later 
so that you and I could have that gift of eternal life. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Will he say it in the end? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Your plan has come to full fruition. The atoning of sins, the reconciliation between us and you is there if we will just hear it. If we, like Thomas, when confronted with the truth, will believe it and turn our hearts towards you and follow you the rest of our lives, eternal life is attainable because of what Jesus did on the cross and because he rose three days later by his own power, because he has power over death. God, I pray for anyone who needs to know that, that they hear, they hear the truth, and that the truth sets them free, that they can come to you, lay their sins at the foot of the cross, and receive eternal life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Help us. Because it doesn't end with just making the decision to follow you. But you've also enlisted us into making disciples of all nations. So help us to reach out to those who still need to hear the gospel. If we've been confronted with the truth and accepted it, help us confront others with that truth so they have the opportunity to know you and receive eternal life. And help us do that as a church and as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen.